Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. It is the middle of February, right? February the 15th. And as we hit the middle of February this year, we're actually going to be starting a series that's going to be about 10 weeks long and take us all the way through the Easter holiday, a series that we're entitling Passion Road, Meeting Jesus on the Way to the Cross. Now, when I say Easter and it's February, there's probably part of you that's going, what? What are you talking about? Why are you talking about this so early? And I think the reason why that's the case is because Easter is a holiday that sneaks up on us, isn't it? I mean, Christmas has never snuck up on any American ever right? It just does not sneak up on us because if you turn on the radio or you go to the store anytime after October the 1st, you're going to be reminded that Christmas is coming. And yet Easter kind of has a tendency to sneak up on us. And I think it's because in part it moves around. Sometimes it's kind of sneaky there at the end of March and other times the beginning of April and other times at the end of April. And the fact that the holiday moves on us sometimes catches us off guard. And yet, as believers in Jesus Christ, Easter is an incredible holiday to celebrate. It's a holiday where we get to celebrate Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, the two central things that reconcile you and I into a relationship with God. And so, though it's possible for us to lose sight of it, this year we don't want to. We want to actually take a season, the next 10 weeks or so, and walk through a 10-part series on Uh, the life of Christ. We're going to be basing this series out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John out of the Gospels, and we're going to be seeing a number of things about Jesus as we walk through uh, this semester. Now, one of the things that we we mention as we talk about meeting Jesus is it reminds me of meeting people, and many of you in this room uh, can remember with great detail the first time you met or had a significant conversation with somebody important in your life. You can, you can remember the details of that thing. Some of you might remember where you were sitting and the, the location. Others of you might remember the time of day that you met this person. Others of you might remember what you were wearing, uh, probably more the women than the men on that one. Uh, but you remember certain details about the time you first met somebody significant in your life. Maybe it was your spouse, Maybe it's your boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, Maybe it was a mentor in your life. But there was a moment where you first met somebody significant. I know uh, for me, I can remember in detail some of the things around the the first encounters I had with some people that are important to me. I remember back in seventh grade, somewhere between Mr. Thompson's math class and Mr. O'Donnell's homeroom class, that I recognized that there was this young woman named Kimberly Atwater, um, and we first connected, and we, she went on to be my wife. Not in seventh grade, that would have been a little weird, but um, later on, uh, we began a relationship and, and began to date, but I still remember uh, seventh grade and, and meeting her in that context. I still remember as a freshman at the University of Oklahoma, the first time I met uh, a man by the name of Todd Stuman who was a Campus Crusade staff person at the time, and he came and he spoke in the basement of the fraternity house where I was a pledge. He spoke to all the pledges there, and he gave us 
this, this great charge about walking with God when we were in college. And I remember meeting with him later that week across some bad breadsticks at Pinocchio's over in Stubman Village. Anybody been around Norman long enough to remember the Pinocchio's over by Stubman Village? Um, Greg, Greg remembers it. Thanks, brother. Uh, but yeah, we, I remember sitting there over some bad breadsticks having just a conversation about life and, and uh, just that relationship that, that, that God used to really, really change my heart and my life and, and teach me so many things. Uh, I remember sitting across the table at, at McAllister's with my friend Courtney about 10 years ago, um, the first time we had a real significant conversation together. And I, I just remember these places, these, these moments you probably remember those places and those moments that you had that first encounter with those significant people in your life. Well, that's a phenomena that's not unique to you and to me. That's something that the people that are talked about on the pages of Scripture, they had first encounters as well. And some of their stories are recorded for us on the pages of Scripture. And what we see in the book of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, as we see a, a first encounter with a number of Jesus' disciples with him. The, the first time they met him, the first time they began to put the pieces together on who he was, the first time they said, you know what, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. Those very first moments that these initial disciples had with Jesus, some of those stories are recorded for us in John 1, 35 through 51. And as we begin this series about meeting Jesus on the way to the cross, we're going to spend some time today in those 16 verses, and we're going to see some of what it was for them to begin to follow Christ and what they learned about him as they met him, and hopefully it will, it will inspire us to want to lean in to, to meeting Christ this Easter season as well. And as we look at these verses today, we're going to basically answer three questions. Three questions we're going to answer today. The first question is this, who are you following? Who are you following? Second question, who are you? Third question, who is Jesus? Who are you following? Who are you? And who is Jesus? These questions will really guide our look at John 1. So if you have a Bible, open up to, to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. And as we look at these verses, the first thing we're going to ask is, who are you following? John 1.35 begins this way. It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, which John are we talking about here? There's a number of Johns in the Bible. You might hear that and think maybe this is talking about the Apostle John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, but that's not the John who is referenced in John 1.35. In John 1.35, the John that is mentioned there is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who was the voice crying out in the wilderness, who called on the people of Israel to repent of their sins in the days leading up to Jesus' public ministry beginning. We're talking about Jesus' cousin, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, who leaped in the womb when he was around Jesus in utero in his mother Mary. This John the Baptist, in his public ministry, had developed a following. There were a number of, of men who had gone out to, to join John in his ministry. They listened to his messages, and they gathered people to repent of their sins and to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. 
John 1.35 says that these disciples of John were standing there with John. In verse 36, it says that as John the Baptist looked at Jesus who walked by, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, that's a pretty remarkable thing. I mean, John had just had his ministry going, and he had some followers, and he makes a comment, and all of a sudden, he didn't have any followers anymore. Who might anticipate that John might have been a little irritated by that or, or felt some competition, that he had just been trumped. But yet, that wasn't the case at all, was it? John famously said over in John chapter 3 and verse 30, he said that he must decrease and Jesus must increase. John the Baptist had a very clear understanding that his mission and purpose in life was not to gain followers of himself, but to help people follow Jesus. It wasn't about how great he was, it was about how great Jesus was, and John understood that. And so when John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and two people who followed him began to follow Jesus, I think John kind of did, yes, they get it. It's not about me, it's about him. And two of John's disciples become two of Jesus' first disciples. The two who heard him say that began to follow Jesus. And verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, this is not the main point I want us to see today, but I think it's a point worth making. And that is that John the Baptist really is the picture of what it means to be a truly Christian leader. See, there are many people who are Christians who lead, but what does it mean to be a Christian leader? What it means to be a Christian leader is somebody who doesn't gather people following them, it's somebody who gathers people and points them to Jesus. That's what John did. All too often, there's this great temptation for Christian people and, and even Christian leaders and even pastors and church leaders to be all about gathering people around themselves. It's a, a cult of personality. And yet that's not what Christian leadership is all about. Christian leadership is not about gathering people following us. Christian leadership is about helping people follow Jesus, and John got that. And so John's disciples, he slings them forward, past himself, and into following Christ. It was important for John that they not just follow him who Jesus said was a good man, but it was important that they follow not a good man, but that they follow the Son of Man. They upgraded tremendously when they left John to follow Jesus, and John knew that. In fact, John himself would be following Christ. He was in prison, which made that a little difficult to actually walk around the countryside with him, but certainly John's heart was very much connected with the events happening around the person of Christ. We begin today by asking the question, who are you following? For these two disciples, they began following a good person until they saw the great one walk by, and then they reoriented their lives, they reoriented their everything to, to follow Jesus. The question for us is, who are we following? 
who are we following with our life? Now, we're gathering today at a church, and so we know what the right answer should be. The answer should be, you might say, God, or the answer should be Jesus. But as you, you say those things, and you know that's what you should say, is that what is reality in your life? And maybe to help determine who you're really following, let me ask some clarifying questions for us today. And, and folks, I'm, I'm not asking this just to you, I'm asking this to me as well. Important questions for us to ask. Let me ask you this. Whose opinion matters most to you? Whose approval do you most seek? Whose perspective most shapes your lifestyle? When you begin to answer those questions, you begin to get to the core of not who you want to say that you're following, but who you're really following. The answer to those things reveals not just your your ideology, but it reveals your, your true Lord. It reveals your true master. It reveals who you're truly following. Who are you following today? You know, some here today are, are following a person, whether it's a husband, a wife, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a boss, a mentor, an icon within your field, somebody that you respect. If you really drill down that the person that you are really following in life is another human, you, everything about you is living for them. It might even be a child that you have. You've oriented everything around them. You're, you're ultimately following them in life. Who are you following today? For some, it might be a person. For others, it might be not a person. It might be a passion. It might be an experience, something that makes you feel good, a pornography, some other illicit activity. It might be drug or alcohol abuse or or whatever that is, something, something that fuels your passions and you've oriented all your life around those things. That's ultimately what you're following. It's not a person, it's more of a, of a feeling. It's more of an experience. You're chasing it with everything that you have. For others, it's, it's, it's neither of those things, but it's, it's a possession or a set of possessions. It's the next vacation. It's the boat. It's the house. It's the car. It's the cars. It's the next thing. It's, you've oriented your whole life around following this, this path of possessions, thinking that that is what you ultimately want. Some, even within Christian circles, get this twisted, and ultimately who they're following is a pastor or, or a speaker that they're listening to. They devour everything the person ever puts out, and they, they take it and accept it and unquestion it. They don't even run it through the filter of Scripture. Whatever this person says, that's what they do. The ultimate authority in their life is, is another pastor or another, another teacher. It's, it's possible for us to be following something or someone other than Jesus. And, you know, we could all make a case for what it is that we're following that it's, it's kind of good and that we kind of like it. It might disappoint us, it might let us down, but there's something attractive in it to us. We were chasing that experience after that initial high that we had, and we, we want to get it again and again and again. Or that that person... We want their, their smile or their pat or their compliment. And so we'll do anything in order to get that. And, and we might build a case for why it's good or why it's, why it's helpful. But here's the thing. Don't let following this, this thing that you could make a case for it's good, don't let it distract you 
from following someone who is great. And over the next 10 weeks, as we are looking at the Gospels and we're looking at the person of Christ, here really is my prayer. This is, this is, the, this is the point of what we're doing in this series. Where we're hoping that as we look at the, the person of Jesus, that, as, that he would walk by. And just like the disciples of John the Baptist, that, that our attention would be focused on the person of Christ as he passes us by. And that we would be so curious that we would follow him and leave the good things in our life to follow the one who is great. That we will leave a good man to follow the son of man. That, that's really our hope in this series is that we would, we would follow Jesus. And though we know that intellectually, many of you in this room, I know you, you could, you're like, okay, pastor, we've heard that point. We know you can move on. We get it. But we don't really get it, do we? Because our lives are centered around so many other things. But this Easter season, just allow your eyes to lift and look on the one who John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Jesus is the only one who is truly worthy for us to follow. First question, who are you following? Second question, who are you? Who are you? We see this in verses 40 through 42. After these two go and they follow Jesus and they begin to stay with him, Verse 40 says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is this great story about one of these initial disciples of John the Baptist who followed Jesus was the ultimate disciple of Jesus named Andrew. Now, what do you know about Andrew? Not much, right? Nobody knows much about Andrew. As a matter of fact, every time Andrew's mentioned, um, all he's ever doing is just bringing somebody else to Jesus. In other words, he, he's just kind of that, that glue guy, right? There's not much that we know about Andrew. Now, how much do you know about Peter? A whole lot, right? I mean, Peter's hopping over the side of the boat. He's walking on the water. He's preaching on Pentecost. He's writing First and Second Peter. Uh, he's the consultant on the, the, the Gospel of Mark. I mean, Peter is all over the place, right? We know all kinds of stuff about Peter, but Andrew, not so much. We don't know much about Andrew. Um, and you know what? It would have been possible as Andrew began to follow Jesus for Andrew to say, you know what? Who am I to really be used by God to do anything significant? It's possible for Andrew to ask that question that I asked you earlier, who am I, and for him to ask it and just say, who am I to, to be used by God to do anything significant? I'm, after all, I'm just an Andrew. But, but here's, here's what's great. Andrew did not let his Andrewness, his androsity, he did not let those things that made him Andrew keep him from being used in a significant way in the plan of God. What, what did Andrew do? He goes and invites his brother Simon to come and meet Jesus, and the rest is history. You see, Andrew got it. 
It wasn't about gathering people to follow him. Who was he? He was an Andrew. But who was Jesus? He was the son of God. And so Andrew goes and and he gets his brother and he says, hey, come and meet this guy. You got to meet this guy. And Simon comes and the rest is history. And you know what? I I think that this is, is so critical for us to grasp and to understand and to see because really when you look at the story of the church in the world, I don't mean the story of, of, of the church Wildwood, that's lower C. I mean the story of the church capital C, the story of the church in its history from the day that Jesus rose from the dead until today is a story of Andrews leading Andrews and Peters to Jesus. That's what it is. You see, Peter had really nothing more to offer than Simon did. He just had a bigger mouth. Um, but, but, but Andrew had, had this opportunity to invite his brother to come and connect to Christ, and, and he faithfully did so, and, and it was enough for Jesus to use to grab Simon's heart and use him significantly in his kingdom. The story of the church is a story of Andrew's. And you know what? It was true in John 1. It's also true throughout the history of the church. I want to tell you a story about a Sunday school teacher. If you teach Sunday school, uh, kids Sunday school, student ministry, small group leader, anything, raise your hand. Uh, adult Sunday school, raise your hand. If you, if you teach Sunday school, if you've ever taught Sunday school, raise your hand. There's, there's a number of you in this room that, that can, can connect to this story because you were in this kind of role. I want to tell you about a Sunday school teacher named Ed Kimball. I, I've never known an Ed Kimball apart from this story. You might know an Ed Kimball, but I'm guessing you don't know this Ed Kimball. This Ed Kimball was a relatively unknown guy who was a Sunday school teacher at a little church uh, back in the 1800s. And the Sunday school class that Ed led was for young men in their teens. And one day, this young man came into that Sunday school uh, named Dwight. Dwight was 18 years old. Dwight had come to the church because he was apprenticing with a a shoe shop down the street. The owner of that shoe shop attended this church and said, Dwight, if you're going to apprentice with me, you're going to go to church with me at this church. And so Dwight showed up at the church. Dwight cared nothing about the things of God, but he wanted a job and he wanted to learn this business. And so he was there. And Ed spent some time with Dwight, enough time to realize that Dwight didn't know the Lord. And so Ed took some time out of his schedule to go and to meet Dwight in uh, the, the shoe shop there and sit down and and introduce him to Jesus. Just say, hey, you know what? There's this guy that you ought to know, just like Andrew did with his brother Simon. There's this guy you ought to know. You You ought to get to know him. You ought to spend some time with him. His name is Jesus, and he's offering you forgiveness of your sins. And you know what? Dwight believed. That Dwight would go on. You might know him by his his more famous name, D.L. Moody and would go on to be uh, this, this, this force, evangelistic force, in the late 1800s around the world, early 1900s. Uh, D.L. Moody is estimated that he preached to over a million people in his life. That's a staggering number to think about. Many, many placed their faith in Christ through the, the ministry of D.L. Moody. But how did Moody meet Jesus? He met Jesus because an Andrew, Ed Kimball, just said, hey, there's somebody you ought to know. The story of the church is the story of Andrews inviting Andrews and Simons to meet Jesus. 
the question, as you ask the question, you know, who am I? When we ask the question, who am I to be used by God, what we're, we're asking, we're focusing on the wrong thing. If we ever just look to ourselves for what we have to offer, then, then we're always going to be disappointed. I have, I have nothing to offer apart from Jesus. But when I look to him, I realize that there is much that we have to offer in the person of Christ. Ed Kimball, Andrew, they got that. Do you? Who, who is it this Easter season that God would, would want to use you just to, to invite to come and to meet Jesus this season? Who are you? Now, what's interesting, after Simon comes, Jesus speaks to him and says, you know what? I'm going to give you a new name. No longer are we going to call you Simon anymore. That was kind of a common name. I'm going to give you a nickname, a nickname that, that speaks of how I'm going to use you for the rest of your life. Jesus said, I'm going to call you Rocky. I'm going to call you Peter. And because you are going to be a foundational piece in what we're going to do in this plan going forward. See, Peter and Andrew got to see firsthand that the most significant thing about you is what Jesus says about you. You are who Jesus says you are. If Jesus says you're forgiven, you're forgiven whether you feel dirty or not. If Jesus says, I want to use you to accomplish my purposes around the world, he wants to use you to accomplish his purposes around the world whether you feel useless or not. If Jesus wants to use you to love your spouse and to care for your children, He's going to do that even if you don't feel like loving. You don't feel very loving. Because you are who Jesus says you are. Who are you? You're a child of God. Maybe an Andrew, maybe a Peter. But somebody that Jesus sees as valuable. Who are you following? And who are you? Third question we're going to ask, though, is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We see this from verses 43 down to the end of the chapter. After these initial followers of John become followers of Jesus, they begin to build some momentum. They begin to build some steam. They begin to take the show on the road to go around the countryside and to invite others to follow Jesus. Verse 43 says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, before we go further, I think it's important just for us just to see for a second what's going on there. You realize that the first followers of Jesus were all from the same area. They were all from the same network. They were all from the same friend group. That's how it went. The, the gospel moved along relational lines. And the same thing happens today. God has placed you within a network. He's given you friends and acquaintances and family and contacts because he wants the gospel to move from person to person. It was that way in the beginning. It's that way today. Nathaniel is brought to Jesus. But verse 46, Nathaniel said to his friend, says to Philip, says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Now, 
That's a funny comment, right? I mean, sometimes we read this, it's way too two-dimensional to us. We need to get 3D on this, on this statement. Um, where was Nathaniel from? He was from Galilee, okay? He was from the city of Cana in Galilee. That was not a very impressive place. In the pantheon of locations within Israel, Galilee was not at the top of the list. I mean, you're from Jerusalem, that was from someplace. That was kind of the, the New York or the Washington. You're from down south, you're from Judah, oh, you've got some prestige, you've got some panache, we want to listen to you. You're educated. You came from the right synagogues. But if you were up north, if you were from Galilee, people kind of spent their time looking down on you. But Nathaniel's comment even goes further to let us know that even among those who lived up north, they were finding somebody to look down on. Nathaniel's like, hey, I may be from Galilee, but at least I'm not from Nazareth. How can anything good come from that stinking little town? Um, now, that's a pretty insulting thing to say to Jesus, don't you think? Not only did, was that something to say bad about Jesus, but he's insulting Jesus' mom, too, and his dad. He went after the whole family. He said nothing good can come out of that town. Nathaniel's insulting to, to Jesus. But Philip said, hey, just, just come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and this is what he said. He said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, this is also kind of a funny little comment um, because Jesus has just been insulted by Nathanael's understanding of what good can come from his hometown. And yet Jesus, after having this kind of condescending comment from another country folk, uh, responds by saying, hey, Look at that guy. That guy is, is from Israel, but he's, he didn't have any guile in him. He didn't have any deceit in him. To really paraphrase this comment, Tom Constable helps us a lot. This is what he says. Jesus virtually said that Nathaniel was an Israelite in whom there was no Jacob. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Genesis, then that's kind of insider language. So let me explain it a little bit to you. Uh, Jacob was the original descendant from whom the nation of Israel came. He had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. That's how foundational he was to the nation. They were the descendants of this man. And yet Jacob was most known for speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Every chance he got, he threw his wife or wives under the bus. That's not my wife, that's my sister, those kinds of things. Uh, he, would, he would say one thing and do something else. How did, how did Jacob uh, get the blessing from his father? He lied to him, right? He said, I'm, I'm this guy, I'm Esau. He, see, he didn't speak truth. And so when Jesus sees Nathaniel plainly speaking what everybody was probably thinking, surely the Messiah is not going to come from that little hillbilly town. Jesus says, hey, look at that. There's a descendant of Jacob who doesn't act like him at all. It would be like saying, hey, look at that. There's an American in whom there are no politics. You know what that lets us know? Jesus is big enough to handle our questions. He's big enough to handle our questions. There are some of you here today that Jesus has walked by, and you've got real questions about who he is and what he's accomplished and what he's offering us in life. You've got real questions about who he is, and you're afraid to ask them 
on the outside for what somebody else might think. But here it is, Jesus, when somebody actually vocalizes what everybody else was thinking, says, you know what, I'm glad you said that because you're a straight shooter, Nathaniel. Now, let me show you who I really am. And if you're here today and you have questions about Jesus, don't be afraid to ask. He's big enough to handle it. Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. But Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, what is that all about? The true answer to that is we don't really know. But it seems like Nathanael might have been having some time with God under a fig tree a time that nobody else knew about, a time in prayer where he was communing with God. The only audience to Nathanael at that point was God himself. And so when Jesus makes reference to that time, Nathanael knows, wow, the only people there were me and God, therefore you must be connected to God, therefore I'm going to follow you. This is what he says. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's about as big a 180 as you'll find in Scripture. In one sentence, he goes from nothing good can come from your hometown to you are the Son of God. Jesus responds and says, you have seen nothing yet. He says, because I said to you under the little fig tree, now you believe, you're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened in the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus uses this picture of going back to the life of Jacob where Jacob saw this ladder open, the stairway between heaven and earth and angels going up and down on it. It was a very prominent moment in the history of Israel that verified God's presence with Jacob and the establishing of the nation. Jesus goes back to that point and says, hey, you know what? There's things that you're going to see over the next three years that will let you know that I am who I say that I am and that God is with me and that really is forgiveness offered through me. Jesus knew that if he followed him, he was going to see paralytics walk, blind see, dead raised, water walked on, few fish and loaves feeding thousands of people, messages taught with authority like had never been heard before. All of that was going to flow out of a death on the cross and a resurrection. All of those things were going to flow out of the fact that Nathaniel was going to stick with Jesus. He was going to see things that would verify God's presence with him. And you know what? Today, as you and I look at the Bible, as we look at the New Testament, as we look at the Gospels, and over the next 10 weeks, as we look at the life of Jesus, you know what we're going to see? We're going to see the person of Christ. If if we are impressed with who Jesus is right now, Jesus is saying, you haven't seen nothing yet. Because Jesus is revealing himself as the one and only. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to get to see some of these things that Jesus promised Nathaniel he would see. And we're going to see it in a, a series that I mentioned earlier is beginning today. And this series is beginning as we today in kind of a prelude uh, to this study. But next week, we're going to move on and talk about parables and 
the parables that Jesus taught and what they revealed to us about his character and his identity. Then we're going to move past that into the power of Jesus and the miracles that he worked um, and how they show us his identity and who he really is. And then we're going to go past that to the purpose of Jesus and statements Jesus made about why he came and who he was. Then we're going to go past the purpose of Jesus to look at the rest of the New Testament to see some perspective on Jesus' life and what he accomplished. And then after that, we're going to look at the passion of Jesus, his, the events leading up to his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And then we're going to end just after Easter with kind of a postscript, what are we to do now? And that's where we're going to be in Sunday, on Sunday mornings uh, for the next couple of months. But beyond that, we also have produced a little devotional guide, and you'll, you'll find these around the church, out in the gathering hall, on a table there, as well as by the back door of the church. These are available to you for free, um, and there are six devotionals for each day of the week beginning this Wednesday, February the 18th, and carrying you through uh, to Easter Sunday. And uh, so if you are looking for a tool to help you see Jesus as he walks by, that we might follow him together uh, this is what this tool is all about, and you can pick it up hard copy, or it's also going to be available in electronic form as well, but it's our desire and hope uh, that you follow Christ uh, this Easter. So let me pray for us. Father, we uh, are just thankful today that we can gather in this place and worship you. Thank you that you have shown us uh, greater things than these. Thank you that we live on this side of the cross, so we get to look back and see the, the crucifixion and the resurrection in light of what they really are all about. Thank you that we can find hope and significance and purpose in life and direction by seeing who Jesus really is. Father, thank you for preserving this truth for us, and I pray over the next 10 weeks that we would just get a clear picture of who Jesus is. And Father, I pray today if there are any among us who have not yet taken that initial step to follow Christ, that today would be the day and this season will be the season that they follow Jesus and trust him in faith. Father, you offer life and forgiveness and hope. There is no one like you. You stand alone, Jesus. We stand amazed in your presence. We pray these things. Lord.